This is First Nature, Episode 7 on the Rising Man Podcast with your host, Sean Barry. Today, we'll be talking about winter solstice when life and myth intermingle. So hold on to your hats for that one. I'm very excited to um, share a personal experience of mine, a time when my just my day-to-day life crossed paths with a very significant ancient uh, myth, and uh, and and I'm going to tell you what happened. Super super fun stuff. Uh, but first, before we drop into that, I just want to say thanks so much for tuning in to listening. Um, if you've been tuning in for a little while now, you may know that I'm pretty passionate about nature. I love talking about how amazing this planet is, how incredible the just that we have the ability as humans to perceive the universe, that we can acknowledge and, and, and interpret and take it in. It's amazing out there. And we live on this, this planet. This planet is one of a kind, straight up one of a kind. And uh, if you take the time just to get out and walk around on the face of this planet, no matter where you are, and to look at the mountains, look at the trees, look at the bodies of waters, um, look at the animals, look at the clouds, and just take it in and realize that this is fantastic. This is an amazing place we live in. And that's what this podcast is dedicated to, uh, just sharing that with other people and enrolling and inspiring anyone who tunes in to uh, get out there and, and to find that connection with the planet, with nature. And uh, it's a real connection because guess what? You are nature too. That's right. You didn't just fall out of the sky from outer space intact. Uh, Your body, your bones, the blood that courses through your veins, the gray matter stuffed up in your skull, all that, that came straight from earth. You know, if you look at the back of a bottle of vitamins or look up trace minerals, you'll see that there are a lot of minerals in your body that your body needs to operate that are the same minerals that are just in a handful of dirt. So there you go. We are nature walking around looking at itself. And uh, that's what I find so fascinating and so beautiful and so amazing. And um, again, thank you for tuning in. Um, Before we drop into this conversation around winter solstice, Wanted to let you know that uh, for the men out there, check out risingman.org. There's so many great programs uh, we're offering right now. And yes, those programs cost money because it takes time to uh, create them and support them. But I guarantee you, it may be some of the best money you ever invest in yourself. And not because we think we're, uh, you know, the cast pajamas in uh, writing curriculum and, and, you know, giving men experiences. I mean, I think we do a great job. But, you know, it really makes it powerful and, and, uh, and potent for a man is the community of men that have come through these programs and stuck around to connect, to share, to build uh, close, intimate, honest, and authentic relationships, to commit to being a support to each other. That's where, that's where the good stuff is. So come through a Rising Man program. You'll be introduced to a variety of circles of men who all are there uh, doing their best to support each other, to receive support from each other, to be the best that we can be, to reach our full potential of what we feel passionate about in the world, to fulfill the visions we have, to, to utilize all that we've been given, the abundance that we, each of us have to do what we can to make this, um, this world a better place for not just ourselves, but for our families, our loved ones, our friends, our communities. And if you're tuning into this podcast, the First Nature Podcast, you know, the underscore here is that we are looking to support ourselves. I'm, I'm wanting to support you, supporting myself. How to do that in a, in a different way, in a different way. How to do that in a harmonious way that is synced up with the rest of nature that 
um, you know, sustains and um, creates opportunity for life to continue to thrive on this planet and to maintain the beautiful environment and the way that life has evolved on this planet to support us beings, us humans, to be here. Um, yeah, it's amazing what we've done and, and there's better ways to do it. We've learned better ways and, uh, and all of us have a part to play. So, um, listen up to this and uh, hope you get something out of it and we're gonna jump in right now. So today, I'd love to tell you a story, a story that's personal to me, to my experience. And um, I'm just going to drop into it right now. So I grew up in a Christian household, and I've spoken to that once or twice, I think, on this podcast. And um, while I don't necessarily consider myself a participant in, in that way of belief anymore, uh, I'm, I'm still very grateful for the way that I was brought up and a lot of the teachings and values that I got from my parents and my community. Um, I still lean into those today. You know, they're not necessarily just uh, exclusive to that belief system. And uh, and uh, yeah, so a lot of gratitude there for my upbringing and the way that my parents raised me. I always want to pay tribute to that, even though that um, I'm living in a, in, under a different different uh, awareness about what spirituality looks like for me as a human walking the earth. And uh, that's been a long journey for me. And I'm going to tell this story about a time. So I did my first division quest, uh, four day, four nights, rite of passage uh, out in the wilderness, solo, no food. In 1998, I just turned 30. And and it was a very powerful experience. It was the first time that I, I encountered nature in a way that was, uh, that viscerally penetrated my sense of soul. I, it was the first time that I saw nature, not just as something outside of myself to, to connect with and to, um, to make relations with, I actually felt myself as part of that natural world and saw myself not as something that had to keep trying to connect and get into it, but actually as a, a, a willing and um, uh, participant. I wouldn't even say willing participant. Like I was, we are, all of us are in the natural system of this planet. We are a product, an outcome of millions of years, millions of years of experimentation by life on this planet. So coming out of that, uh, I began to really explore a much more metaphorical, mythological, mythological life. The, the process I was in, we had a lot of mythological stories in the process building up to the time that we went out to be in the desert for four days. And I got very fascinated by the mythologies that I was hearing from all different cultures, not just Native American, but I was hearing some from Af some African legends, some Australian legends and myths. And um, my upbringing, you know, because of the Christian upbringing, uh, those were things where we, we were really cautioned against spending too much time and, you know, taking in because um, it was uh, contrary to the, the uh, spirituality that was being taught through the Christian, um, the Christian method. So, but at that point, I uh, allowed myself and gave myself the the uh, the prerogative to follow that passion, follow that interest, follow that curiosity, and start to 
really just read more about mythology, read more myths in general. And because of one of my mentors, who I also met at, met at that time, Kent Pierce, um, who often told me that he was living a mythological life. And what I came to understand that to mean was that he was always trying to find a mythological perspective to better understand what his events that were happening in real life meant, you know? So and I took a, I took a page from him in that sense, because most of us, most, a lot of the conversations I have with people, um, we're always trying to understand like, why did this happen? What does it mean that this is happening to me? Um, where's my life going? What are the challenges? Why, why do I have these challenges, you know, and how, why can't I figure out, you know, how to move through them or why does life keep throwing me these, you know, obstacles and for a long time. And I still do, I still drop into that kind of dialogue with myself and friends. Um, but for a long time, that was as far as I can get. I was just into the, why me? the why me phase. And what I got from Kent was, you know, there's so many mythologies out there and the mythologies contain so many teachings that apply to the present day, because sure, the, the time is different, the circumstances and situations are different, but the experiences, the human experience is the same because we've been human for quite a long time now. So to go and read these mythologies and start to break them down and to better understand the metaphors and, and the, um, the, the way that those metaphors and stories apply to our modern life has been really, really helpful and powerful to me to understand more about where I am and my trajectory of, of my human experience. So that's uh, the foundation I wanted to lay down for this story. Um, when I went out on my first fast, the thing that I was, um, so when you go out there, you basically are working on a vision, you know, the vision quest. A lot of people think that's uh, you know, having some kind of a hallucination. That's not really what it's about. The, the quest for the vision of yourself, creating a vision, imagining a self, you know, a part of a, a way of you that is being in the world that you can inhabit. I'm not saying that very clearly. The vision quest is, is questing, is finding a vision of yourself. Who do you want to be? What do you think your strengths and um, you know, abilities are? What are your gifts to the world? And what lights you up the most about you know, how you want to interact with the world, your way of being and, and how you get things done? And, um, and thinking about the, the you know, it's a, and, and then thinking about the outcomes, you know, what kind of outcomes is that way of being creates in the world for you and the people that you are you know, including in that? So uh, a big part of that for me, that first time or not, was reclaiming my, uh, the vision of myself as a creative person, as an artist. And that's something I'd lost touch with. I was, um, as I said, I was about 30. And uh, as a youth, I was extremely creative. I was drawing, painting, writing, making comic books, building models. Uh, I was into all kinds of things. And then, um, you know, I had an incident somewhere in my late teens that sort of broke that connection for me. And it had been a painful wound ever since. And I had a lot of trouble just kind of getting back to reclaiming that part of myself, that to be able to say to myself that I'm an artist, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an artistic, creative person. So that was the vision I was recalling, reclaiming for myself to go out there for those uh, that rite of passage. And Basically, part of the way that it came through was um, 
on the first day I was walking around, actually we weren't in the desert. I said we were in the desert. Um, that's where we take out guys now. We're in the desert a lot right now. But when I went out, I was actually up on uh, a mountain ridge at just under just under 10,000 feet. I think we were like 95, 9,700 feet. And uh, lots of pines, very beautiful. And as I was walking around that first day on my solo time, I kept seeing these young pine trees and they would have these little boughs that, um, I don't know if it's the humidity or the time of year, but they would sort of start to bend over, like kind of droop down towards the ground. But then they would also kind of curl up and they would make almost a complete circle. You know, anywhere from like four inches to nine inches across, depending on the length and the size of the branch. And I was really fascinated by that because they're almost like perfect circles. It was kind of magical. And so I harvested a few. Um, and and this is what I think is really fascinating about humans, at least me. This is how it worked is I don't really know why. I didn't, it's not like I had a, a clear plan on why I was harvesting these pine boughs. I just thought they looked cool. I had a pocket knife. I wanted to handle them. I wanted to hold them in my hands. I wanted to examine them. I wanted to figure out like, could I actually somehow close it off into a loop? And then would that be cool? I know it's not a very good word, descriptive word, cool. But for lack of a better, you know, lexicon, I just got engaged, interested with these things. So I, I cut a few off and I started messing around with them. And they were still very soft and pliable. The bark came off really easy. And I could almost kind of braid them. And sooner than I thought, I had like this almost braided hoop of two or three boughs I had fashioned together. And it took me about 30, 40 minutes maybe. And I'd never done that before. It was just something intuitively that was coming forward. Just my creativity, my willingness to experiment and figure it out and just kind of follow the flow of what I was interested in. And uh, soon enough, I had this, you know, roughly... I don't know, must've been about 10, 10, 11 inch hoop, braided hoop. And I held it up and I was like, wow, that's, that's just so cool. It looked really cool. And instinctively, I just placed it on my head and it fit almost perfectly. Had to kind of bend it here and there, just kind of to shape it a little bit to kind of fit on my head snugly. Um, but it did, and it felt like a crown, like a natural crown. And I just, something awoke inside of me, something that felt regal and dignified and, and also because of just all the tall pine, I was standing, you know, I was walking amongst a forest of, you know, anywhere from 100 to 200 foot tall pines or gigantic pine trees. And I suddenly felt seen putting that crown on my head and it was like a little bit of a scale kind of fell off my awareness. And I realized that I was being observed. I was being observed by the sentience of nature. And that included everything from the birds and the insects and, you know, whatever mammal life was creeping around to this, the sense of a sentience, even from the trees. You know, trees have life. Trees are alive. They're an organism. And there is some kind of awareness they hold. And I was able to detect an awareness of that, or at least became like a heightened awareness of I was really intrigued by, the, by how, how does plant life uh, detect other life? So flash forward uh, through those four days, what I started to do was, um, so I, I, at that end of that first day, I found some ivy and I wrapped some ivy around the crown and, um, and I just wore it around the rest of the day. I, I stripped down naked and I was just, there was a little creek that was going through my area. So I took a little splash bath, uh, put the crown on with ivy and 
And I just started to get creative. And this is where the healing came in because this is stuff that you would think that little kids would do, you know, not a 30 year old man, but there I was with a little crown I had made that I just splashed bath in the creek. And then I went on a, a procession. I went on a procession walk through the forest to be seen, to be seen by the trees. And it was powerful. It was very powerful. I remember just having a deep sense of connection and um, just a sense of joy, a sense of peace, a sense of belonging that I belonged here. This was home for me and that I was making relationship with everything around me. Second and third days I woke up and I uh, would find different um, types of foliage and I would replace the foliage with fresh, fresh foliage. And um, I would wear the crown for several hours a day and do these um, sacred walks to be seen and just practice um, walking in awareness, walking in relation, walking in presence with each other of whatever was witnessing me and how I was witnessing everything around me. Of course, it wasn't lost on me uh, that um, the way that the wood kind of braided into the crown reminded me a lot of the crown of thorns that Jesus wore uh, before he was crucified. And on the fourth day of the fast, I found a, a bush that had thorns on it, like two inch thorns. And my hair was long at the time. I had a bit of a beard and, um, and I, and again, this is the part where the intellect just had to take a back seat because something else was moving inside me. There was you know, all these teachings, all these experiences, all these stories, um, this spiritual, you know, uh, spiritual primordial uh, context that was just working on a different level than my conscious intellect was. And I knew that I wanted to put the thorns into the crown and wear that around. Also on the fourth day, basically the opportunity is to prepare to do an all night vigil that fourth night, because you come out the fifth morning having completed your fast. And uh, so, yeah, you can find, uh, create like a special place to stay the whole night and you stay up crying for your vision. Um, you know, just going over the, the vision that you've created for yourself and, and just fine tuning it and testing it out and making sure there's nothing in there that doesn't feel real, that doesn't feel authentic. You know, after four days of not eating and being out in the wilds with minimal equipment and then staying up all night on a cold, you know, high mountaintop, um, it's pretty hard to come back that fifth morning with any hubris or a sense of falseness about who you truly are and what you truly are capable of. So, so the, the vigil night's a really great opportunity to just find, finally purify um, this ideal vision of self and making sure that there's no, um, no veneers, all the veneers can fall off. And the power spot I had chosen to do my vigil was up at the, at the very top of this ridge. It was about uh, probably another three or 400 feet up and it was pretty steep. And um, so basically I, I carefully um, wove some of the thorns into the crown that afternoon, the fourth afternoon. And I very, very gently placed it around my head. My hair was, like I said, my hair was long. So I had a little bit of a buffer there and uh, wasn't terribly painful. Um, it sat there pretty nicely. And I began my ascent up the rest of this, up the top of this ridge. And again, wasn't lost on me. This is sort of like, you know, going up Calvary, you know, Jesus going through the procession, the stations of the cross and the, and the Catholic teachings, right? And, and I started to think about Jesus and this different level of, you know, so much of the teachings of the Bible talk about, you know, God sending his son to earth so that um, there was a, you know, God incarnate, God as man, so that 
God could fully understand um, what the experience of mankind was, his own creation. Going through all, all the sensations and experiences that we go through as humans. And then paying the ultimate price of dying on the cross um, to account for uh, everyone's sin, you know, according to um, at least the, uh, the more, um, what's the word, uh, Protestant teachings. So there I was going up this uh, mountainside with this thorny crown, my long hair. And um, I did my all night vigil up there. I was sitting very exposed on this flat rock area. I just had maybe a couple feet around me to move around. And then it was pretty much like a drop off in every direction. Beautiful night is very hard night, but I, I was able to do that. Came back down, walked into the camp. Uh, I was wearing the crown. I was the last one in because I was the furthest one out and also up on the top of this ridge. There was uh, five other men that had gone out with me. And when I came walking back into camp, um, of course, everyone's beaming because we had all just you know completed this really difficult challenge. And, um, and I walk in, it's just huge smiles and they're whispering like, it's Jesus, it's Jesus, Jesus is reborn. It's risen from the dead, which is really quite accurate to the process of the, you know, this rite of passage. There's a ritual death and rebirth in the rite of passage, the vision quest rite of passage, where you die to yourself, your, the identity that you hold presently up until the four days is dying off. You have to let it go, create space and room to call in a new vision of who you are, what your new identity is. And uh, so it was all, that was really the first time that I kind of saw that mythological and that real uh, overlap happen in my life. Um, of course, I wasn't really fully grasping it in the moment, but as the years passed and reflecting back on that whole um, you know, part of it with the crown and going up and to the top of the mountain and doing my ritual death and rebirth and walking back into base camp the next morning. Um, I started to, to see how these stories do reflect real life and, and the, the desire and the need for the human to have these certain experiences that give them a greater awareness of what it, what it means to be going through humanity, to be who we are. So that's, uh, that's chapter one. Chapter two, yeah, we have to flash forward now even further. This is uh, going on close to 15 years after I'd done that rite of passage. And uh, at this time, let's see, I'd gone through, I'd gotten divorced. I had also been through a significant long-term relationship that fell apart and I was um, in getting into my 40s and I was really longing for th that part of, you know, living where I just, where's my partner? Where's my life partner? Where's the person that I get to enjoy life with, that I, I get to share life with, that I might get to start a family with and create some legacy with and grow old with, right? That really wasn't showing up and I was really missing it. And I was just really just jonesing for intimacy, for someone to just know me. And I just so badly wanted to know somebody, to really know them, to see the magnificence of another human, you know, personally, intimately. And um, so there was just a lot of uh, grief coming up. And I realized that I, I, what came to me was, well, okay, let me just back up a second. So there, I'd learned how to guide with, another organ, with that organization that had taken me out. So I'd been, uh, since I had gone out, when I was 30, 
I had learned how to also guide and had been taking groups out. So this is 2014 now, the summer of 2014. I was guiding a, gr gu a group of guys and uh, we were at a different location. And um, there's two of us guiding. And so once we're sitting and once the men have gone out to their solo spots, there's four days in base camp where we're just kind of holding down the fort. And um, each guide gave, we, we gave each other a little bit of afternoon time every other day or so to just, so we could get a, get a little bit of solo time too, just take a little walk around base camp, get out, stretch our legs. So in my day, I was, uh, I was walking and um, I was in that space of um, really just like, why, what, why, why is it that I have not yet met a partner? and wanting intimacy and, and wanting connection in that way, wanting to be, be devoted and committed to somebody. So I was uh, really heavy with that feeling and those thoughts. And I felt this sense of like, I really just, I wanna do something. I wanna somehow demonstrate what I'm feeling because the words were really cutting it. And especially they're just the words in my head. And I had so much feeling and, and there's a, a place you get to when the feeling is so much and the words can't really describe the feeling. And we just have to do something physically. We have to act out. We have to express something that goes beyond words to, to you know, move the molecules around in the universe to, to arrange them in such a way that we, we can be seen, that we can see ourselves, that we can uh, just make alignment between the, how life is occurring to us and what life is like on the outside. And I don't really know how to say it any better. But there I was on that walk. And I came to a spot. It was a beautiful view. I was, felt tears coming on. I sat down and I just cried. I just felt, let the grief go. And uh, after uh, some of the sadness uh, passed, then I had some frustration come up and I was just like, what, what do I have to do? And I was kind of lamenting out to this guy. I had this beautiful, beautiful view. I was up kind of on a higher ridge and I could just see for miles and miles, just rolls and hills of trees and formations and ridges. It was outstanding. And so I was really just putting it out to the universe. Like, what, what do I need to do? What haven't I done yet? I, I had done so much work on myself. I was making, trying to be responsible and make good choices in my life. Um, you know, developing myself into being as a holy, complete, powerful, awake human that I could. And, and, and here I was just, I was the only one who was getting to witness it close up and feeling that sadness. Um, so in the middle of that lamenting, I literally had my arms up in the air and I was speaking pretty loud. I was saying, you know, what do I have to do? What is it going to take? What do I have to do? Just tell me what it is. Just tell me what I have to do. I'll do it. I'll do it. And a breath came, so I took in a breath and I am not one, I, I really, I wish I was someone who could uh, hear voices more and had more of a connection to the liminal worlds and be more of a sensitive in that way or clairvoyant or just in touch with what we call, you know, the energies that we call spirits and devas and whatever. Um, but I'm not, it's just something that doesn't really, uh, I just don't operate in that frequency except for this time, because I literally got a little quiet after that lament and I just heard a voice and yeah, it was the sound of my voice, but I didn't have, there was no thinking going on. I was just so full. Uh, yeah, I just fully expressed all this emotional energy and I just had like a quiet kind of space in my head, no dialogue, no chatter. And a voice just said, marry me. 
And it was really clear. And I kind of, I wouldn't say I got spooked, but I definitely perked up and was like, whoa, okay, wow, I've never really had that happen where I had a voice, you know, that wasn't really my thoughts coming to my head. And in that moment, I really did understand it to be the voice of the earth. That was the only thing I could connect it to because I was in the middle of just, you know, sharing all this energy and emotion and connection with earth and talking to, you know, the universe and just, you know, that was what was up in that moment. And, uh, and that's what the voice said. The voice said, marry me. And I knew it was the earth, mother earth. And I took a second because I wasn't sure what I was, what I was going to do. And, uh, so a second went by and I said, okay. And then I spoke out loud and I said, will you marry me? And the voice immediately said, yes. And I felt something sort of relax and ground inside of me. And, uh, so I thought, okay, great. And then the voice came back and it said, will you marry me? And that actually struck me much more deeper than me asking the earth to marry me. The earth asking me to marry it felt much more like the real commitment. And I felt edgy. I felt nervous. I felt like, what am I, am I really having this conversation? Is this a real thing? And, and that was my intellect coming in because emotionally, I, it, it was very, very viscerally real to me. And, but there it was, this question, will you marry me? And I took a deep breath and I said, yes. And I felt again, that sense of relaxation, relaxation and grounding, not quite as deeply. I was definitely feeling edgy around what am I saying? What am I, what am I doing? And then the voice said, when? And that's when I really was like, oh man, what is going on? This is definitely the sound of my voice in my head, but I'm not asking these questions. And that question in particular really got me um, slightly alarmed because I realized that I had to make a commitment. I had to put a timeline on, on and that's not something I, I've done very well ever, right? I, I like to play kind of footloose and fancy free. And uh, so there was this pregnant moment of like, whew, I gotta like make a commitment. And so I said, uh, before the end of the year. And then the voice went away and this space that I was in through that conversation kind of dissipated. And pretty soon I just keep, became more in contact with, well, I'm just out here sitting on a ridge in this beautiful place. So that moment kind of came and went and I had that conversation and I felt I needed to somehow ceremonialize what had just happened to concretize it in a more um, physical way because I knew that my intellect was just going to chew on it and, um, and water it down. And, you know, I'm, I'm prone to doing those things. My scientific uh, mind really likes to prove things out and goes out of its way to, to um, break them down. And I knew on the other side of me, this is the more emotional side of me, the more intuitive side of me, that something very, very, very potent had just happened. And um, so this is what I did. I decided to do a little ceremony. And ceremony is a kind of interesting thing because um, 
you know, there's high ceremony, there's traditional ceremony, there's ancient ceremonies that are still practiced today. And then there's also just ceremony, which to me just means doing some kind of physical expression to demonstrate um, that something in your interior and in your internal world has just shifted and changed. And you don't have words for it, but it needs to be expressed. It needs to be shown and seen and made real in the real world through interaction. So this is what I did. I, um, it just came to me. It's like, I need to give my seed to the earth. I need to make love with mother earth right now. And, and, um, you know, cemented that contract that I will marry her, um, by making this offering. So that's what I did. And, uh, some of you might think, Whoa, that's kind of weird. And, uh, in my head, I was like, this is a little weird, but also it felt really natural and it felt really important. It felt Again, there's so few words that I can find to, to put onto this experience. So what I did is I just started to, uh, I found a rock and I was kind of in a sandy, you know, kind of dirt area. And I sort of just started digging sort of a, a, a you know, a, a vagina. That's what I was making. I was digging a vagina in the dirt, you know, just kind of a long um, channel into the ground about four or five inches long. And, uh, and then I decorated around it. I put some rocks around it and I really made it look like a vulva. And then I pulled out my penis and I got a heart on and I said some prayers. I said, thank you. And it was super uncomfortable and super weird. And, um, but I knew that I had to do it this way. And as I was um, masturbating myself and ejaculating into this little crevice that I had made, I was also looking out at this view. And, um, and again, I, this is just goes beyond my intellect. This is something else that came up, something spiritual, something intuitive, something emotional, something ancient, something uh, cosmic and earth-based that was beyond my humanness because I don't, I can't give you a textbook clinical um, PhD explanation about why this all happened. But I ejaculated to the crevice. I said, prayers. I said, thank you. I said, I will marry you before the earth is over. Uh, this is my contract. I've given myself to you. And then I buried that and covered it up and walked back to camp. <laughs> and of course you can imagine I got back to camp and um, I had been gone for maybe, I don't know, hour and a half. It wasn't that long. And, uh, my co-guide, um, you know, he was just expecting me to come in and, you know, talk about like what a nice walk I had. And I walked in in kind of an altered state and I knew that I couldn't even really tell him what had just happened because I, I didn't fully understand it myself. I wasn't really able to, to even get into the conversation. So I, I just, you know, he's like, how was it? And I was like, uh, it was really good. I, um, I, uh, had a good talk with earth and, uh, yeah, it was good. And then I kind of ducked out. I went to get some water and, you know, took a little nap. I just, I didn't know what to say. So came back from that trip. And um, a few days later, after we had returned the men and we closed up the ceremony, I got in touch with my mentor, Kent, and I told him this whole story. He's someone, you know, someone who lives a mythological life who would totally get that. And I told him the story. He just got super excited. He was like, wow that's incredible. That's amazing. So when are you going to do it? When are you going to marry the earth? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know. I just said I would do it by the end of the year. He's like, okay, well let me know. Cause I want to, I want to help you do it. I said, okay. So that was like, uh, I think June 
sometime in June. So went back, get into my daily life, back to work, back to life. And it was kind of in the back of my mind, but I'd gotten kind of hazy. I'd kind of, I didn't forget about it, but I wasn't thinking about it that much until sometime around September, late September into October. Um, I was having a conversation with Kent and we were about to finish the, the phone call. And he said, Hey, have you decided when you're going to marry the earth? It's getting kind of late in the year. And I was like, Oh, right. Yeah. Got to do that. So I got off the phone and I started thinking like, Oh, okay. Wow. Like I got to figure out how I'm going to do this. So I decided that I was going to do it on winter solstice, winter solstice, December 21st, which technically celestial speaking is the end of the year. It's not January for January 1st is kind of this arbitrary. There's nothing celestially important about January 1st. Um, I've always been wanting to move my personal new year back to December 21st because there's just so much more going on in alignment with how the planets and the stars and the earth and all that, you know, there's some actual concrete differences that start to happen after the 21st that just feel more in, in alignment with like starting new things. So I decided, okay, December 21st, 21st, I'll marry the earth. And um, they gave me about six weeks to prep or so for it. And um, yeah, a little more, I guess I had like seven or eight weeks almost. But again, I was moving pretty slow because I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know how to do it. And I didn't know what it meant but um, slowly started to go there. And what I decided to do ultimately was a traditional celebration. Um, so of course, most of you know Jetty, who started the Rising Man movement. Uh, he had just come through his own vision quest and uh, I had the fortune to be his guide. So we had made a good connection there. Um, he had just started dating uh, Carrie, who he's now married to and have two beautiful children with, but they were just getting together. And uh, I'd known Carrie for a few, year, few years already. So I asked uh, Carrie to be, my, uh, to be the bridesmaid. I asked Jetty to be my best man and ring bearer. Kent was the father of the bride. Uh, Kent's wife at the time was going to be uh, the mistress of ceremonies, along with another uh, wonderful man, uh, Richard Palmer, who's in that community too, to be the, the master of ceremonies. And they're both actually ordained to marry. And the uh, <clears throat> Mother Earth was going to be represented by a uh, bouquet of wildflowers that the women had gone out and picked that morning and Kent was going to carry. So that was the setup. I... Um, we we're going to do it in the backyard of Kenton Farian's uh, property where we had had a lot of ceremonies before. So that felt really important and powerful to do it there. And I also decided that I was going to get a tattoo on my ring finger of the, uh, the astrological symbol, at least in the kind of Greek Roman world of earth, which is a circle with a cross to it. And that would represent my, uh, my permanent marriage to earth. And then finally, I was going to spend that whole 24 hours uh, fasting. So I was going to get up that morning, fast, have the ceremony in the afternoon. And then I was going to go spend the night with my bride, uh, which was basically going to be a solo camp out that night uh, through the next morning and finish up my fast. So I kind of planned it all out. Leading up to the week of the ceremony, the week before this, the ceremony, so the 21st was, was on a Saturday, so that worked out pretty nice. And the week of leading up to it, um, a couple of days into the week, I get a call from Kent. He's like, uh, hey, 
do you still have that pine bough crown you made from your first fast? And when, you know, we're talking almost 15 years. So, but I did, it, I had it in a box somewhere and I said, yeah, he goes, okay, great. You need to get that to me before, you know, as soon as you can. And then we're going to, you know, oh, what he said, uh, he said, who do you think is more appropriate to marry earth, a prince or a king? And I said, uh, well, a king. He goes, yeah, we got to king you before you get married to earth. I was like, whew, okay, all right. Um, and it felt like I was, I was ready for that. I knew that I was entering a stage in my life where I was starting to uh, maybe grow just a little weary of kind of the, the warrior energy of thinking that I needed to be out there hammering, you know, hammering the world, beating the world into the shape of what I wanted it to be. Um, I was starting to feel myself open a little more into letting, letting, you know, the world sort of hammer me a little bit and shape it the way that it wanted me. And just that transition of coming out of warriorhood, coming out of princehood and coming in more into, you know, my late forties into a, a sense of a more of a, just more that kingly presence of someone who's an observant, someone who's of service, someone who's, who is in, um, you know, who is, uh, responsible for a greater collection of people and their well-being of a place and a land and a kingdom, which is really in line with my desire to take care of earth. So I said, okay, let's do it. So I got the pine bow crowned to him. And uh, a few days later, this is like uh, Thursday, I think he said, okay, so I'm going to give you directions. You need to show up at this time, at this place where your most kingly clothes. I said, okay. So Friday night, the day before the ceremony, I drive up to this uh, property, it's dark. It's new, it's near the new moon. There's no moon out, it's super dark. And I'm wearing, uh, I, had, I had these white pants, uh, white linen pants and this white sort of Indian style, kind of longer shirt. And then I had this um, um, wool long cloak, hooded cloak with a clasp. So that's what I wore. And I, I park my car, I walk into this property. I'm, you know, got my headlamp and I'm kind of navigating down this little path and I can hear voices and I see the flickering of a fire. It's cold. So I kind of come through the, into this little clearing and there are seven men and they're huddled around the fire. They're all men I know. They're all men that are older than me, except Jetty. Jetty is there. And uh, as soon as they see me walk up, they, they stop talking and they immediately all stand up and they say, welcome. And I just felt my heart start to race a little bit. It just had this taste and feel of something very secret, something slightly sinister, but very, very exciting, clandestine, um, secret society, mythological. I mean, it was a very potent feeling. Beautiful. I love that kind of stuff. So I said, hello. And then they all kind of gestured to a chair that was empty for me to sit in. So I went over and took a seat and sat down. And um, one of them was basically running the evening and they were there to vet me as representatives of the father of mother earth. They were going to uh, query me about my intentions, about why I wanted to get married to Earth and what did it mean? And was I fit? Was I ready to take on such a responsibility? So thus began the questioning. And um, as the questions came, I was uh, really just spending time thinking, feeling into my heart about how, what is, what is the best answer for this question? 
And I felt like I was doing really well. I felt like I was, you know, answering for my hearts, answering authentically. I wasn't trying to make things up if I didn't know. I just would say I didn't know and then wondered if that was going to somehow affect this outcome. And um, all was going well until this one gentleman, who's, uh, his name is Mark Bass. And uh, his uh, spirit name is Question Mark. And if you've ever met this man, you would understand that he's a little bit of an enigma. He's always asking interesting questions that don't really have answers. And um, he can catch you off guard a lot. It's a little bit of a Hayoka. So he turns to me and he goes, uh, how did he say it? He said, um, are you enough? And isn't there joy in knowing that? Are you enough? And isn't there joy in knowing that? And I still remember that question to this day, which is going on almost 10 years because it struck me. Uh, I struggle on and off with chronic low level depression in general. I call it my Eeyore syndrome. Um, you know, as soon as I open my eyes in the morning, I just feel dreary and it spends, it takes a lot of energy to kind of get me up and going and, uh, create a positive outlook. So I'm always contending with it. And, um, and I, I don't, I didn't really have the word joy in my vocabulary. I didn't use that word. I would never use that word to describe myself. And it was just something, a word I didn't use. And, uh, so that was one part of it. The second part was, uh, are you enough? And historically that phrase would always annoy me because when people would say that to me before, like you're enough, you're enough, aren't you? You're enough. You got this. I would get frustrated because I feel like, well, yeah, I'm enough as, as if I could, I should stop trying. Like as if, as if somehow the uh, self that I thought of myself as was somehow derived and there was no more work to do and people thought that was good enough. And I didn't like that. I, I, I definitely can be hard on myself and I definitely see that there's always more that I can do. There's always more to grow. There's always more service to offer. There's always more, 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 more to expand into. And so I, would never, I never really resonated with that phrase. I didn't like it. It made me think that I needed to just stay small as opposed to always trying to expand and, and do more to have more capacity. So, uh, I, that question stumped me and I sat there, I had to really think about it, you know, and silence was pretty thick in the air. And, um, and I finally said, uh, well, I know I don't want to be the dark King. So I can't say that I'm enough now, and I can't say that I'm a, I'm a joyful king now, but I understand that by marrying the earth, I'm committing to becoming a king of lights and a king of joy. And uh, everyone nodded. That was a good answer for them. There's a few more questions, and then they kind of wrapped up the questioning. And, uh, and then they came to me, and the way they did that was really beautiful. They basically had me uh, stand up uh, walking into the middle of them and they all stood up. So now they're uh, encircling me. We're all standing. And they said, kneel before us. So I, I kneeled down on one knee in the middle of the circle and then they brought the crown out and they had all put some objects. Each man had put some object of nature. So there were feathers, there were acorns, there were a little sycamore, um, I'm not sure what they call, but these little sycamore nuts, 
um, some dried grasses and flowers. It was, it was beautiful. It was just amazing. And they all basically held on to it in a circle, each with part of their hand, just kind of, and they lowered it down onto my head. And they said, with this crown, we king thee. And then when they finished putting their crown on my head, they said, rise, king. So I stood up and then they all took a knee around me. And they said, long live the king. And uh, it was, I have to tell you, just telling this story now, it, it, it's so vivid in my mind. It's so powerful. It was so mythological and so beautiful and so potent and so imaginative and creative. And um, oh, it was a beautiful moment. I still remember it so clearly. So we finished that moment and, I, and then I said, please rise. And so then they all stood and then it was hugs, congratulations. Um, you know, basically we were concluding the ceremony with a uh, celebration and uh, it was really, really just fantastic. So we put out the fire, we left that place. I went back, fell asleep. Next morning, I get up, I, I'm fasting. So I just make some hot water and um, I'm staying at Kenton Farian's house because the ceremony is going to be in their backyard and where we were the night before was pretty close. So I have a little time, the afternoon, the ceremonies in the afternoon. So I go into town to a coffee shop um, just to get, um, do a few texts. I wanted to, I was still writing my vows and I wanted to research a few things about vows. So just take a little time myself. And um, so there I am in the cafe and uh, on, on the web looking things up. And so I take a little break. So close up the browser windows and was looking at my, uh, my text window because I know there's a list of texts of people I hadn't gotten back to. So, um, and one of them was this woman, a newer acquaintance of mine who had grown up in Scotland and she had texted me a few days ago, hadn't gotten back to her. So I, um, so it's the, it's the 21st too. And I also knew that this was, um, you know, in, in Scotland's Yule is still a pretty big holiday there. So I just texted her. I said, Hey, hope you have a great day. Da, 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 da. By the way, happy Yule. And, uh, sent the text. And then I sat there for a minute. I was like, Yule, I don't really know that much about Yule. And suddenly I just got curious. So I jumped back on the web and I started Googling, like, what is the history of Yule or what does Yule mean? Right. So I'm poking around. Um, I read a couple little articles that don't really go too deeply into it. And then I find one that had like a synopsis paragraph. And I, to this day, I wish I would have copied it and pasted it somewhere. But to the best of my recollection, it said something like, Yule is the time of year when the dark mother releases her grip on the earth, on the earth so that the sun king can begin his ascent again. And I was stunned. It's like, oh my God, we just did that last night. We just enacted that last night unknowingly. None of those men knew about Yule. So I sat there and the, you know, this, um, this whole thing about, am I enough? And isn't there joy in knowing that and making a commitment to, to step into my joy, to know that if I'm going to be married to the earth, that I'm required to be a joyful king. It just slapped me so hard in the head. I can't even tell you in the heart, it hurt my heart a little bit in a good way. 
And I realized then that not only does my, my gift flow through my joy, but in fact, it, if I don't have joy, I'm, I can't be in my gift fully. And that really, really, really just struck me hard. So I sat with that and, uh, and realized that here I was, solstice, winter solstice. We had just done this beautiful ceremony where intuitively we had actually performed the rites of Yule without knowing it and how wonderful and beautiful it was to recognize that that was just something that came through our humanity, something ancient and historical and, you know, in our DNA, in our, all our mixed histories across the world of our lineages and our ancestry, somehow that bubbled to the surface just through the inspiration and creativity and passion of men wanting to be of service to each other and to hold each other up. And I was the recipient of that. So to conclude this story, I finished up my coffee time at the uh, coffee shop. And then I went back to Kenton Ferian's. Uh, we prepared for the ceremony. And all I can tell you is that it was, it was just so beautiful. Uh, here in California, uh, you know, things don't really green up until midwinter um, because the rains don't really come until late fall. Um, everyone was just wearing their, their flowy, beautiful bass stuff. And um, we had a beautiful ceremony. I read my vows, which is really beautiful. And then I had already set up prior to all that a, uh, um, with a tattoo shop to do the tattoo that day, made an appointment. And also I'd specifically requested a woman to do it. So after we completed the, the wedding vow ceremony, uh, we all caravaned over to the tattoo shop and we crowded around the chair as the woman uh, put on the, uh, the tattoo mark of earth on my ring finger while everyone you know, witnessed it. And then um, as soon as I was finished, I uh, you know, said my goodbyes and set off to finish my solo time uh, with my new bride. Finish off that fast and go do an overnight with her up at the top of the mountain. And there's more to that story about what happened once I got up there and that my original spot that I picked out uh, didn't work out because it was storming crazy. And that involves um, a, ch a charge from my mentor, Kent, who had made a suggestion that I fast somewhere else that night solo. And I said, no, <laughs> and then I'll get into that another time. Cause there's definitely more of a, a, there's a different mythological context there with that story with my mentor, Kent and how that all turned out. But to bring this fully, fully to a close, I, I did finish my overnights, had a beautiful just time under the stars with just me and earth. Um, the next morning, actually, we had scheduled, we had a regularly scheduled community meeting around. So the community is Condor Clan and uh, it's a fasting community. And so after people go out and do their rite of passages, um, there's several times a year where we open up the doors for people to come back and just, you know, connect and share and talk about how it's going. So uh, it was really nice because I was able to show up to that meeting and tell my story of the whole thing, kind of like I'm doing now. And when we finished, I, I, so I told my story last, everybody got to share. And then I told my story and we kind of wrapped up with some acknowledgements and um, pretty quickly people were coming over to me and, and thanking me for that story and wanting to see the tattoo. And, and at some points, someone's kind of holding my hand, looking at it closely. And they said, you know, a lot of times um, there's the, you know, the, uh, 
this, the, um, what do you call it? Not the peasants, but the, the subjects of the king will kiss the king's ring as a sign of, of, you know, fealty. Can I kiss your ring? And I was like, oh yeah, I kind of chuckled. We kind of chuckled. We thought it was just kind of a fun thing to do. So I said, sure. So he kissed my ring finger on the tattoo. And I was like, thank you. And then the person behind him says like, I want to kiss the ring. And suddenly there was like this line of like 15 people who are waiting to kiss my ring finger, to kiss that tattoo on my ring finger. And again, just continuing to watch this mythology unfold into my real life was so potent, so powerful. To see that these, these stories aren't just fairy tales, that these are all based on very real human attributes and expressions that somehow got into our, you know, our species through our mythology, our storytelling, the way we process our reality with our brains, uh, just everything all rolled together comes forward. And to see it um, coming you know, to a mushroom head in that moment where now here's the, the story continues. Here they are kissing the king's ring. I got to tell you, man, it's, uh, it's such a rich, rich experience. And I'm so uh, grateful to uh, get to share this story again, because even as, as I'm telling it now, I feel it all coming back and it's, it's re-sparking. Um, there's lots of, um, you know, pieces get dropped all the time because it's a crazy world out there. And we got jobs, we got families, we got kids, we got things to do, places to be, rent to pay, bills to pay. Uh, we got a crumbling climate out there. Um, I, we all get, get distracted. I get distracted and um, it's so valuably important to do what I'm doing now, which is to remember who we are, remember our stories, to look for the meaning of our life stories in the context of the mythologies that have been around, some of them for thousands and thousands of years. They're still being told today and it's because they're relevant, they're important, we can map our life experience into these mythologies, into these mythologies, and that gives us trajectory, that gives us direction, that gives us a reference, it gives us an ability to ground out and say, like, it's okay. I can see that my life is crazy in this way right now. And I don't know what's going to happen, and it's scary, but I can see how it's a very similar context to this myth that I've just found, and what happens to them, and how will that play out in my life? So, my friends, rising man, family. Men, I hope, uh, I hope you found something useful in this share today. I hope that you will uh, find some curiosity and interest in reading some more mythologies, particularly the ones that come from your ancestry, right? Every, every lineage of peoples on the earth has some kind of mythological um, context if you go back far enough. So look into it. Where did you come from? You know, what are, what are the gods of your people? What are the story of those gods? What are the tales? Uh, I think it's really a rich, rich place to find guidance. And if we all bring those to the table when we connect as men from all our different lineages and, and find the overlaps and find the connections, um, then it's just another beautiful way that we get to support each other. You know, Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And that's basically what he did is he looked at all these mythologies from around the world and he found what he called the great mono myth that all of these mythologies, certain stories from these different mythologies from around the world, from cultures who never, ever, ever, ever had contact for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, somehow had a very similar story. I find that fascinating. I find that reassuring. I find that underneath all the differences that we can divide ourselves over, 
uh, if we go back far enough in time, we find that we're all the same. We're all human. We're all trying to understand who we are and what we're here for. And there's so much to be gleaned from looking into our distant past from our ancestors. What did they do? How did they come to the stories? You know, who told those first mythologies? Where did they come from? And how, how is it that they survived so long and they're still being told today and that they can be relevant to your life and my life? So that's the invitation. That's the prompt. Um, that's the request. I, re I request that you dive into your own mythology, that you dive into your own ancestral history. All right, Rising Man family, thank you so much for tuning in and listening. Wow, that was almost a one-hour story. I didn't think I was going to go that long, but it just kept unfolding, and I just kept remembering all these details. And um, I really hope you got something out of it. I hope you found something inspiring. Um, I really just I want you guys, I want everyone, but men especially, because men, whether women like it or not, we men have built the world. We have built the world, and we've also broke the world. And it's on us. It's really on us to do whatever we can. And this is, you know, whatever generation you're in, it's on us going forward to make the difference that's going to, you know, make the difference for the rest of humanity. The next 20 to 50 years, it's up to us. So I hope that you can find something in the Rising Man, uh, you know, programs through the podcast. If you're getting some inspiration and some support from that, um, awesome. Just keep tuning in, keep coming back, keep showing up. I'll bring your support to the men here in this community and let the men in this community support you. That's how we do it. All right, risingman.org, check it out. Uh, join a program, join a group, get in the fire circle. That's, that's the basic, most easy thing to do. There's online groups where you can just show up and there's men who are ready to catch your story, ask you some good questions and help you along the way. Um, huge shout out to Mark, Julian, Rowan, and Ryan. Um, these are the men who put all the stuff, <laughs> all the words and pictures together on the podcast, on YouTube, on the social media threads to make it look good. They get it out there on time. They bring that to you. So um, thank you guys for uh, just, you know, all you do. Um, don't forget, uh, if you uh, do like what you're hearing and getting from these podcasts and other Rising Man uh, offers, um, please do uh, subscribe to the podcast. Um, pretty much any podcast app, it'll show up. Um, subscribe to our YouTube channel. And, you know, leaving a rating and a review on iTunes really, really helps because as the ratings get bumped up, um, that just puts it more in the stream of, you know, gets in front of men who may need to see this and may get something from this too. So please help us out with that. And until next time, um, get outside, find out about who you are inside by getting outside. It's that easy.